space-time, the ever-expanding frontier. These are the records of the most needlessly complicated rewatch of the Star Trek franchise ever. Its mission, to locate every second and contemplate every eon, from outside time to the Big Bang, all the way to the end of all existence. To do what no sane entity has ever done before. This is the Temporal Trek Podcast. Hello and welcome back to Season 1, Part 2, Episode 4. We are back in our own timeline. We have escaped the Temporal Cold War from our last episode, only to come back to what seems to be our timeline in what could be the beginnings of the real Cold War, in terms of Earth, anyway. We are at Deep Space Nine, Season 4, Little Green Men. Now, to review this episode, I'm not going to be alone. Um, this worked last time. I'll see if I can do it. Jarman, are you there? Hello? 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 This Is this Jarman? Who is this? Uh, all right. Um, my name's uh, Ensign Dan. I'm, well, I'm actually from your future. I've been captured and forced to watch history as some sort of TV show. Um, I, I think I, I reached some colleagues of yours in roughly the same time period. Is this 2020 that I'm calling you in? It is. Ah, oh, fantastic. This has worked again. This is so good. Um, okay. Um, I'm having to watch uh, an episode. I think I, I've managed to forward the details to you. It's from 1947. Yeah. Have you managed to get a look at it? I did. I did. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Um, what we're going to do is we're going to review it for this podcast and hopefully, as Q seems to think, it's going to get our ratings up by having some extra guests on. Can you help me? Absolutely. I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Right. Well, let's get into the episode then. I'm going to read our blow-by-blow account with my notes, and we'll see where we can go from there. Um, but before we get started, Jarman, who are you, just so that everyone knows at home? Sure. Uh, my name is Jarman Day, and I'm a voice actor and podcaster. Uh, as well, and I, uh, you can find some of my work on a play on Nerd, which is our podcast network. Right now, we're mainly featuring a show called Muppet Trek, where each episode we review one episode of the Muppet Show and also an episode of the original series Star Trek. So, not unlike what uh, our poor Mister Hitch is doing right now. And uh, we also have a show called Real Opposition, which is only coming out basically once a month, where we review terrible movies. And we also have an improv uh, radio theater segment at the end of each episode, where you can hear the sequel of that movie that we. Coming up soon, we have more shows, so check us out there. And also, you can find me at JarmanVoices.com, where I do audiobooks, commercials, video games, whatever kind of voiceover needs you might have. So go ahead and check that out if you can. I seem to remember, actually. I think I've I've heard some of those audiobooks when I was in the Academy. Excellent. Um, I do like Real Opposition. I, I, I thought that was a really good one. The, the Howard the Duck one was fantastic. Um, oh, we have one in the can right now. It's just not out yet. I do apologize. It hasn't gotten there, but it's going to be Major League 2. Oh, oh, okay. I'm looking forward to that one. Um, and, and of course, Muppet Trek. Can't go anywhere without your Muppet Trek. That, um, just I love the idea of swapping the characters, the, the transporter accidents. Always good. Inside people, it's like, like 20, 25 minutes, so you can get through real quick. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's actually really good. I mean, back when I was uh, walking to work, um, it was always good to you know pop it on and then listen uh, to the whole show. It's fantastic. Right, okay, let's get into the episode. We open up on the scene of Quark's face suddenly awaking after a bright flash. Uh, he wakes up in a room that, to us, would seem quite familiar. Um, the surroundings sort of look like an old Earth sort of observation room. Um, he sits up on what looks to be sort of a table, a slab, maybe a medical bed, and he sees that Rom and Nog are under some sort of white sheet. And it seemed to evoke, at least for me, the, the footage that you saw for the Roswell incident. Uh, I don't know about yeah. you, John. Yeah. That autopsy of the alien. Yes, exactly. Uh, so they, from the get-go, they were already sort of invoking that kind of uh, that imagery. In the surroundings, uh, he's screaming. Um, you know, he wants to know what's going on. We see a darkened figure, a, a man lighting a cigarette. Now, for me, this really put me in mind of the X-Files. I don't know about you, John. The Smoking Man. The Smoking Man, exactly, yes. Uh, instantly, you don't like this character because he's smoking and he's in the dark. 
Uh, he's watching two aliens freak them, freak out about where they are. Um, and on that note, they actually uh, the episode they didn't want the censors didn't want them to have smoking in the episode. But Iris even Bear argued that you can't have 1947 without lots of cigarettes and cigars. <laughs> oh my god, that that's so good that you've mentioned that because at every point in my notes, there's like there's more smoking, there's more smoking. <laughs> Why are they still smoking? It's just. <laughs> I was, I was almost expecting them to be finishing one as they're lighting the other, then extinguishing one as, as they move it around, whilst another guy's got a pipe and a cigarette at the same time. <laughs> so, uh, from his uniform, we can kind of work out there's a, a US Army connection. Um, he reaches for a phone, he picks it up, and he says, one of the Martians has woken up. Now, this is actually a nice callback to the previous episode I've just recorded uh, because uh, calling aliens Martians, it places us in a time frame uh, because uh, up till then, you know, the, the public knowledge of aliens or the public thought of aliens was pretty much Martians because of H.G. Wells, because of War of the Worlds. You know, that was the parlance for those kinds of things. The, the term alien didn't sort of come into until much, much later. And that actually gets used in the episode, like I say, just recorded, where we're in the alternate timeline in 1944. Someone else calls those aliens just Martians. Um, so I thought it was a really nice sort of, uh, just a word, just to sort of fix us into a time frame. Uh, any thoughts? Yeah, you know exactly where you are at that point. Fortunately, and I think this is the first for this podcast, I'm not just relying on things like, uh, you know, uh, terms and words to try and work out what time period it is. We cut to a calendar. It's so nice when the, the episode does the work for you and it's July 1947. So we're going to pause here and we're going to jump out to uh, the history lesson, as it were. So 1947. Now, normally, because we know that uh, this episode is going to be taking place around Roswell, I would try and focus on that. But that's going to bring up a whole conversation in just a moment. So I'm just going to look at world history for that time. Uh, in 1947, the year actually began um, with Mount Hecla in Iceland erupting, causing widespread destruction. Now, do you remember a couple of years ago there was the eruption in Iceland that sort of grounded all the flights and things? Yeah, I think I remember the name of the eruption or the mountain though. It was, uh, it's unpronounceable. I, I, uh, I, 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 or something like that. It's it, very long. It's all the vowels, just all in one word. <laughs> but um, unlike that one, because uh, Hecla, you know, there aren't that many commercial flights and things like that. It didn't cause as much disruption to flights, but caused a lot of devastation. We've got um, a Bedouin boy discovers the first of the Dead Sea Scrolls in this year as well. And it's actually a copy of the Book of Isaiah, written in the first century BCE. Uh, the discovery that uh, carbon atoms uh, exist in all of carbon uh, life forms uh, also happened in this year by uh, Willard Libby. And from that, he was able to work out that you could date prehistoric findings. So the introduction of science to archaeology uh, not just guesswork, we could now drill it down to years, uh, as it were. We've got uh, probably our famous sort of artist, I always try and pick one character who stands out from this time period, is Pablo Picasso. And he's uh, kicking about and he currently paints uh, the Ulysses with the sirens. Trying to stay to the US now, we've got President Truman, who actually gets mentioned in this clip later on, uh, an ex-captain during World War II, he became a businessman and he was then a politician before becoming president. Probably no, most notably for finishing the war by uh, signing uh, the declaration to bomb Hiroshima. Also famous for having his own piano next to his desk in the Oval Office. Not just any piano, one that was tailor-made to him. So it's actually a slightly different size to a normal piano, which I thought was quite funny because it does get mentioned later in the clip. The piano playing Democrat, exactly, exactly. Um, but I thought it was interesting that he is a businessman, so the decision that will come later when we discuss it, it kind of makes sense that he's able to sort of figure out what Quark's game is because he's also a businessman, he's also got that savvy as well. I thought it was quite fun. 
But we can't go anywhere in 1947 without discussing the biggest event. Uh, Jarman, do you want to take it from here? Oh, sure. So in 1947 in Roswell, we have a farmer who reports that a, a UFO of some sort, some unidentified flying object, crashes on his ranch. And there's all sorts of varying stories that arrive after this point. That's the only thing we know for sure happens. Um, but apparently wreckage was found of this craft. And the Air Force went to investigate. They sent out some low-level people at first who were like, it's a UFO, it's an alien craft, and that one in the newspapers. So you can actually find the newspapers from 1947 saying, um, flying saucer crashes in Roswell, New Mexico. And then the uh, upper brass were like, whoa, 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 what's going on? So the Air Force went down there to actually investigate with some higher-level people, and apparently they did a news conference saying, oh, it's just a weather balloon. And then people started saying that the um, they saw bodies that were in the crash as well. So then the Air Force changed their story and said, oh, it was actually a experimental craft that had uh, crash test dummies. So you saw dummies that were on the ground. Um, so there's, the Air Force has changed their story a few times, so it's a little <laughs> confusing. Um, but uh, and from there, there's uh, conspiracy theories that the craft was then taken to a nearby Air Force base called Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. In Hangar 18 is where they kept the craft and possibly the bodies. Um, and that's actually kind of where they're hinting that this episode takes place, is right Patterson Air Force Base, which is right near Glasgow, New Mexico. That's kind of a really short rundown of what happened. <laughs> <laughs> no, thank you very much. I, I don't know much about the conspiracy theories. You see, from the century I'm from, uh, that kind of got lost in there. There's a statue of you, there's your audiobooks, but for some reason, <laughs> the Roswell um, the Roswell conspiracies kind of missed us by. I no, did. Meant real aliens didn't matter anymore. <laughs> exactly, exactly. It's not really a conspiracy. They're just you know down down the next solar system. You know, it's nice and easy. I did see that in Roswell they had Walker Air Force Base until the late sixties when it closed. I was wondering if it if this air base in the episode was supposed to be that, but if it's supposed to be what in was Roswell? the yeah. So what was the air base that? So this was the one that became Area Fifty One. Yeah, I think um, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base actually isn't even in New Mexico, so my facts are wrong, but the uh, they took they supposedly took the craft from Roswell to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which might actually be in Ohio even, um, ah. but anyway, it's not in the same state. You're right, there was Walker Air Force Base right there in Roswell. Ah, so I was trying to work it out. I was trying to see what air base is this. Is it supposed to be Area 51? Is it doing something? So I couldn't work out from, uh, from uh, what I was able to see on the internet. Yeah, at one point the guy, uh, the, the professor says um, in the episode that the craft is in Hangar 18, and that's a reference to Hangar 18, which was at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, which all the conspiracy theories surround. <laughs> now it makes sense. One last little thing. The project, Operation Sandstone, started in this year. Now, Sandstone was the testing, or the operation, to test future developments in atomic bomb technology. It was started 1947, but the first test of that operation wasn't until the next year in mid-1948. So at the time this episode happens, there are no atomic bombs going off. I don't know why I'm mentioning this. Uh, and even if there were, the tests were happening over in the Marshall Islands in the middle of the Pacific, about 9,000 kilometers in a different direction. So just pointing that out, just maybe yeah, that will come up in conversation later. I don't know. Um, but that endeth the history lesson. Uh, so we're going to get back into the episode. Uh, my first note is smoking, funnily enough. <laughs> There's a room full of people and they're all smoking. Um, and people are lighting up whilst talking. I think it's just funny to just watch, uh, just to think that that was the common practice. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> um, and of course, I don't think we can get this far. This bit I do know. I don't know much about behind-the-scenes knowledge on Star Trek, but I do know that this particular colonel who uh, they're talking to, uh, he should be saying something like, hey, brother. Um, he should be <laughs> yep, singing. Should. Yeah. I, he seems to remind me of someone that I saw in a history record, maybe in Kirk's era. Yeah, very, very similar physique and, and voice, but uh, he just, he looks older. I don't know, maybe yeah. the same guy. Something about that. Maybe he's been playing around with a time machine or two. I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> but from that, I think we do get sort of a really good B-movie feel. Uh, I don't know about you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. At that time, you know, when the 50s and late 40s, when those movies were coming out, it feels just like him. He's the perfect, like, straight-up 
colonel type character with that rough voice and very rough and talking down to everybody and the cigar sticking out of his mouth. I love that character so much. <laughs> you kind of already know where you are with that character. As soon as you hear that voice and you, the way he delivers it, it's a fantastic <laughs> performance. Um, Absolutely. I love that they do discuss that it was the Air Force who after them pushed this, this angle of the story of the weather balloon and they had to make it up on the spot, um, which kind of fits perfectly with what you were saying. Yeah, absolutely. I, uh, I also like, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I've been to work and, you know, you've had to sort of think up something creative on the spot, um, you know, you will come up with some of the weirdest choices your brain could ever think of. <laughs> uh, weather balloon. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> it was like, was he looking at a poster of like clouds? And he said, weather. And then there was a kid running past and he had like a red balloon. Like, weather, ba- weather balloon. That's it. Weather balloon. That's what it is. <laughs> it makes sense, damn it. Uh, I like the discussion that they say that, um, you know, we can't release what actually happened. You know, there'll be a mass panic and, and all this sort of thing. Um, skip, skipping over to a different franchise, uh, the Men in Black. Uh, I always have that uh, ringing in my ears when uh, Agent K or Agent J uh, are sitting on the bench and they, they're talking about, you know, person is you know smart and they could handle it but people are dumb and panicky and when you look at the news today to place it where we are in 2020 um you know you see mass panic over toilet rolls and uh, <laughs> Absolutely right. what would they do if they actually learned that aliens actually landed i think it's the first time i've listened to this episode or watched this episode and thought actually i kind of agree with what they're saying <laughs> oh that's why they're doing it oh yeah um so the ferengi uh for the first time uh they start uh sort of waking up and uh court goes to sort of instantly try the panel at the side the little tile on the side of the door as opposed to trying the handle which i thought was quite funny it's a nice nice little touch you know yeah, exactly. In the Ferengi language, which is always fun to hear. Um, but uh, I think this is actually a good explanation as to why there are handles on the doors in Starfleet Academy. Because for alien races being confused. Exactly, exactly. So confused. So if you train them up, if they happen to get thrown back in time, they meet a door, they know they don't have to go for the panel, they can sort of, you know, blend in with the surroundings just turn the handle that would be absolutely fine <laughs> it's part of the training exactly it's all part of the training it's 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 all about osmosis and learning gradually um they try to communicate they bring in this professor who is engaged to the woman on the team you know that 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 way that the way that they talk to you know that they refer to her as if she's not in the room. It's just, um, it just evoked everything about 1940s culture. Um, it's then that we go over to the Ferengi, and obviously to us, they're speaking perfect English. Um, and they start talking about the divine treasury. Uh, they wonder if they're actually in you know, Ferengi heaven. Uh, and I love how Quark sort of slaps that down and says, Rom, don't be an idiot. If this were the divine treasury, and then he goes into even more ridiculous things. Uh, any thoughts on uh, the Divine Treasury and uh, the Ferengi? Oh my god, I had a note about the uh, the vault. What was the Vault of Despair or Vault oh, of Destitution? Uh, I think yes, the Vault of Eternal Destitution. Oh, yeah, the court says, don't be ridiculous, the bar was showing a process. <laughs> <laughs> They're seriously debating life or death whilst there's weird time travel stuff going on around them. I thought it was fantastic. This is the first time in the history that we hear about uh, the, the, the uh, Ferengi heaven and hell, possibly. Uh, I think it's it hilarious. is. <laughs> I think it is. Um, I think it needs to be sort of introduced as in like a new topic in the Academy just to sort of make sure everyone knows about it. I also yeah. thought it was interesting that they were saying that they barter for new lives. So the Ferengi have this idea yes. of like reincarnation. Yeah, the great auctioneer, they said. Yeah. Yeah, I guess you, you bid for your new life. <laughs> He does. He does. You know, you don't, you don't attain awareness through peace or some sort of Buddhist way. You have to buy your way through. It makes perfect sense. No profit in your previous life. <laughs> exactly. Just then, uh, the military police burst in, but we don't have universal translators. And I think this is one of my favourite parts of the episode, where they start banging their ears and they're they're, they're mimicking us. <laughs> They're whacking their head over and over. <laughs> 
we get uh, Nog talking about um, it's a nation state, maybe Australia or something. Um, <laughs> it doesn't happen in the scenes that we're watching, but earlier on in the episode, he is given a guidebook. He clearly missed that part of geography uh, in the book. He was really trying, but he just didn't get all the way through. He re- yeah, exactly. I suppose, you know, it might be a short trip for them. I don't know. Um, it will have to get through. <laughs> this guy that walks in, uh, one of the, the blonde uh, officer, the yes. uh, young, younger guy, pretty terrible at portraying his role, if I should say so. He's got to be the worst actor in this whole thing. <laughs> but that's either here or there. <laughs> <laughs> he does sort of leap to uh, certain extremes very, very quickly, I find. Yeah, chewing the scenery, kind of like Shatner-esque kind of thing, <laughs> but not in a charming way. <laughs> do you think he was maybe a Star Trek fan and thought, you know, I'm going to do a Shatner. I think I'm going to go for that. Uh, very possible. And I from... want to do 1940s-style acting, which is what kind of as well. See, I don't know whether that would have made it better. You know, try and stage and block it like it was an actual 1940s B-movie. And like, oh, that's true. they're all wearing the white scientist coats with the big thick glasses, you know, carrying the, the clipboard whilst they're doing it. Well, it's really weird uh, like watching this unfold because I uh, just watched Tomorrow Was Yesterday uh, on the time of Kirk history. Of course. Uh, and it fits right in with this. I just watched this last week, so it's like another airbase episode back in time. And it's just That was closer <laughs> to the 40s, so it's a very similar feature. <laughs> I also like the idea that the uh, Universal Translators are actually in the ears. I don't know yeah, about you. Never heard that before. I don't think. Yeah, I think it always been implied that it was in the communication device of whoever was holding it, but the idea that it was implanted into the ears of at least the Ferengi. Yeah, because they don't really explain how if it's in the Ferengi's ears. How do the humans understand them? Like, yes, does it then translate your speech as well? <laughs> <laughs> it's like the the fish in the uh, Jagger's Guide of the Galaxy. Oh, yeah, um, that for you. yes, the Babel fish. Yeah, of course. Maybe that's what um, Rom is doing later on with the little hairpin. Maybe he's trying to wake the fish up. <laughs> yeah, just fell asleep in the beta wave. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it must be first thing in the morning uh, for you over there. You know, um, you know, the idea of being prodded awake. You know, that's. <laughs> <laughs> and there you go. Now I can translate. <laughs> The uh, Quark then finds out that, uh, obviously, if they're mimicking us, that they're possibly not the smartest uh, species right now. Uh, and it's, you know, millions of primitive humans. I like those odds. Uh, it's them. He's, he's already on the, the take. He always wants to figure out how he's going to exploit the people who are around him. Uh, you know, it's not even a case of, like, fearing for his own safety. He's straight in it with half, how do I exploit this scenario that I'm in. Yeah, and it really shows, I, I don't think we've ever seen Quark this completely filled with avarice and ambition. Like, he's, <laughs> this is, like, he wants world, galaxy domination. Like, I've never <laughs> seen him this crazy before. It's amazing. <laughs> it kind of, exp- for me, it kind of explains why you get all these crazy Ferengi stories, sort of earlier in TNG and things like this, you know, where you think, why did they even think that was possible? But <laughs> With the whips and everything. Exactly, like... Who thought that was a good idea? Just so filled with ambition and greed that can't handle themselves. Exactly. They're, they're having the exact same moment that the guy who came up with the weather balloon story is having. <laughs> Just throwing things out there. Just th- the world, they see a poster of a planet. Uh, Dominion Dom- Domination there we go fantastic um, I also like that um, whereas Quark is going for the angle of how do I take over uh, Nog is going straight for the Umox. Uh, and wants oh, to try and, yes. wants to try and get the nurse to help him out. <laughs> it's basically tricking someone into groping your other <laughs> parts, and it's, it's kind of rapey. I don't know now. Yeah, I'm yeah. on board. <laughs> so, suddenly, the smoking doesn't seem so bad in the whole scene when you've got things like that. Um, and, and of course, you've got the the professor who is um, they're trying to work out if there's a family structure, uh, and then they think the quark is possibly the mother. Uh, and then the uh, the professor says, um, if she is, she's quite a shrew. Again, it just sticks you into that time frame. This is the 40s. That's true. Very, the chauvinistic culture is there. <laughs> At least they were historically accurate. Yes, very true. Very true. Speaking of uh, a moment in time, uh, obviously, then the, the episode sort of veers into this weird, I don't know, I don't want to say preachy, but it's sort of, it goes into this whole thing about uh, an eco-friendly message, you know, nuclear fission, we irradiated our planet. And, you know, you've had 
some great comedy scenes up to this point, and then all of a sudden, I don't know, there's this this message that they're trying to work into it, which later then uh, devolves into you know poisoning their bodies with cigarettes. Um, any thoughts? I kind of thought that was actually, it still goes along with the comedic thing, that even though uh, Ferengi are so nuts and completely based off greed and um, capitalism, that they still wouldn't be crazy enough to radiate their planet or smoke cigarettes. I thought that was kind of funny <laughs> in its own way. Well, know? they don't want to damage their investment. I mean, if they're, if they're bartering yeah. for new lives and, you know, they've uh, built up an empire on a planet, don't destroy it and don't destroy the body. You know, it's, it's, it makes sense. If you die nice. early, that's less profits in your lifetime. So why would you do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my body isn't a temple. My body is my business. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I thought it made good sense. Yeah. Uh, call, causing, uh, calling uh, Earthlings savages. Um, it kind of invoked the idea that um, whenever we see a human talking about a uh, Ferengi, there's there's this, I don't want to say casual, I think it's just outright racism towards the Ferengi. But it's quite <laughs> nice that Quark is kind of getting his own back, really. That's true, yeah. And that's even back as far as um, humans, their first interactions with Vulcans, where they're outright racist towards Vulcans. And, you know, and then they move on, like, oh, Vulcans are okay, but now we're going to be racist towards Ferengi. So it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> it's not cool. <laughs> to boldly go pushing the envelope just a little bit. Yeah, just a little bit at a time, and then find a new race to be racist to. Yeah, exactly. It's fine. Specious. <laughs> uh, I also th- uh, thought it was quite nice uh, that Rom points towards the hairpin. Uh, in this scene as well, and we get what must clearly be the words "thank you," and it's "nip grin." Yeah. It was quite nice that you can already start working out the language uh, from what. The, yeah, nip nip grin. I, I phonetically I nip wrote that nip grin, um, but it was just nice that it kind of felt like it was an organic language. I don't. I, have you got any notes about? Um, sort of no, the language? I didn't find anything about the development of the language or anything, but it is fascinating, and I think with the humans sounded just like kind of distorted audio, you know, but, yes. um, which was interesting. And it's a good choice, I think. But yeah, I wonder if there's actually developed Ferengi language we could study. That would be fun. Yeah. Would... You probably have to pay a lot for the course to learn it. That's true. That's the they only don't thing. have that on Duolingo or a Fish <laughs> or something. <laughs> then go into a discussion with the two humans in the room at the same time. And um, the nurse, uh, the lady character is is talking about new worlds and new civilizations, and this brought me back to the first episode of this part of the season, where we had Edith Keeler, who has a grand speech about um, you know new worlds and men in spaceships and going to the moon and, and so forth. It's nice that it's always the female character who seems to have the forward-looking perspective. Yeah, the dreaming and the peaceful perspective, as opposed to like you know the business and warlike perspective. <laughs> And another parallel is that that speech is then immediately followed up by a man who is only concerned with his own primal urges and wanting to see her in a wedding dress. Oh, God, yeah. That's <laughs> a lot of play. Yeah. So, you know, woman good, man bad. I, I, I can get on board with that. Same thing. He said, she says something wonderful and inspiring <laughs> again. He just starts kissing her. It's like, yeah. can she just have a moment of intelligence <laughs> taken away from her? <laughs> Exactly, exactly. This also brings in the discussion about uh, tobacco and drugs and poisoning your body. Uh, and uh, if they'll buy poison, they'll buy anything. And I think there's never been a truer statement ever said in the whole of Trek. That was so great. I wrote that down too. <laughs> <laughs> so all the characters then have a discussion about the timeline. Uh, Nog, I think, proves how good an officer he's going to be. Uh, because he's straight in with protecting the timeline. You know, be careful with your choices. Um, he tries to appeal to Quark's own greed. You know, make sure that you don't affect everything. Even your bar is at stake here. But Quark has already moved on. He's already seeing bigger opportunities. I uh, just wondering if you had any more thoughts on that. Oh yeah, I mean, just to no, it's just totally proving himself as Starfleet material. And even though he still has a little bit of ambition, um, right before they arrive here, he shows that uh, in the ship. Mm. Uh, before this happens, but yeah, he's a uh, he's, he's a good kid, and he's uh, I think Jake has helped him along quite a bit. Yes, absolutely. Jumping out of the episode, obviously, we're now watching this. Uh, I think this is the first time I've watched this since obviously Aaron Eisenberg um, has passed. Oh, um, right. It it made watching this whole episode quite different as well because later on we're going to see another actor as well who's sadly no longer with us, um, and I think it just proved how. I think for me, how I, much I loved the Nog story. I was just wondering if you had any thoughts on that as well. 
Yeah, and that's the thing about Deep Space Nine in general, is just that they, these characters have great through lines, and they, they grow and they change, and um, that's something that you might have, I think, talked about in last week, uh, which was you know the Enterprise crew doesn't mm-hmm. exactly uh, grow and change so that people didn't get really involved in those characters as much. Yes. Uh, but Deep Space Nine is just incredible with the arcs that they have and the growth and the change um, over time. You know, and the friendship that um, you know, Quark eventually has with them. Um, Odo as well, you know, like that develops, you know, and changes. So yeah, it's it's so great. Absolutely, absolutely. We then see um, a bunch of photos of the Ferengi shuttle. Um, just looking at the shuttle, um, I'm not generally into sort of starship designs. I don't know much about you know design and technology and stuff, but I do like the design of this shuttle. I thought the the look of it it looked like it fit into that world. World. Yeah, the sort of the fray, it just it seemed to fit the design for it. It didn't seem like it had just been thrown together at the last minute. Yeah, like I, I'm not a big ship guy either. I know mm. some uh, Star Trek fans are just that's all they focus on is the ships and they have all the models and everything, yeah. which I think it's neat and all, just oh, not yeah. my thing. But <laughs> I think, yeah, the first time I saw this ship, I was like, that was like it should be a friendly ship. That yeah, it's at this point that it brings back a, a memory every time I watch this episode. Um, back when I was a young wee boy, um, I was sort of just getting into Star Trek. Um, I'd been watching uh, Deep Space Nine and TNG, and I was in love with it. But I hadn't really engaged with the wider Star Trek fan base. You know, back then we were stuck in our our little basements, and we weren't allowed to leave. And you know, geeks were geeks. You know, back then, and uh, we were afraid to go outside. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> but we had the Star Trek magazine, and it felt like you know there was a there was a, a thread I could pull to get to the outside world, and they had uh, open letter writing, so you could just write in with questions and things like this, and it was the first time I'd sort of engaged with the wider Star Trek fan base. I'd had friends who I watched the show with, but never other people, and I actually wrote my first ever sort of fan letter into the magazine where I was talking about this episode because it had just been a couple of weeks ago. Um, And I I, I wish I had a copy of the magazine because I think it's been sadly lost. But I had this, I had this thought, I had my first Trekkie theory that this was the beginning of Section 31. Um, You know, we'd had Section 31, uh, I think had already been, one of the episodes had already played, the first time we'd heard of Section 31. And it put me in mind of this episode that... They'd seen the technology, they'd seen this advanced technology, and that's why sort of Section 31 was sort of a little bit more advanced than the Federation is now. You know, they, they've had this technology a little bit longer than everybody else. Um, even though the shuttle is taken away at the end of the episode, they have, you know, photographs, they've seen how the work, how some of it works and things like that. Um, and, you know, as a kid, and it just always, this episode always puts me in mind of that. What a great theory, especially as a kid, to have that kind of idea. <laughs> And uh, what's really kind of interesting to think about is how much Gary Seven, was that his name? I think it's Gary yes. Seven, right? Yes. How much he plays into actual canon because if that, that spin-off show had ever happened, because apparently, I was just watching Tomorrow's Yesterday, and apparently that was going to be mentioned in the second episode of the Gary Seven show, where it was say uh-huh. that's, that Gary Seven was actually involved in the inner workings of that happening and was notified of, of Kirk and the crew coming back to of the 1960s. So I wonder if they played forward with that. We could have had some canon where Gary Seven was actually part of Section 31 oh, or something like that. That would have been so interesting. That would be thing. so good. That would be good. Because, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm not 100% sold on the idea of a, a just a Section 31 show, but just the idea of just glimpsing a little bit further behind the cat, you know, the curtain and sort of learning a little bit more about where it came from. Um, and it was just one oh of those gosh, things. You just gave me a great idea. They should have a Section 31 show set in the past. That's sort of how it starts. Oh, in the 40s. yes. Sort of X-Files sort of meets Star Trek. Ooh. Kind of like that, not Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., but well, Agent Carter show. Yes. <laughs> oh, that would be good. That's why sort of the deltas and designs are sort of permeated throughout everything because it, it was there at the beginning that maybe they saw a few things. Maybe they found... contact with alien races before anyone else did. Yeah, because they found the guidebook, didn't they? Um, the, they would have found Nog's guidebook, which is in perfect English. Doesn't like he... Back to the Future 2, you know? Exactly, exactly. So they've been... They've, they've had a copy. They've had photographs of every page on that thing. So they know the future history for, like, a good 400 years in advance. Wow. That's a Ooh. show right there. Oh, my God. That is a show. Oh, I like that. <laughs> right. Wow. 
that's going to be going into our alteration segment later on. Okay then, so... Uh, so, um, they start talking about lingual structures, they're trying to work out the language, but it doesn't matter because they've managed to get the universal translators working. And Quark is, of course, giving himself a promotion, and he is now chief financial advisor to the Ferengi Alliance. Um, if they start talking about different technologies, transporters, the universal translators, it's simple if you know how. Uh, and I really wish I knew how it worked, because that would be a, a million dollar idea to, to do that. Yeah, <laughs> classic salesman. Yeah, doesn't have to sell the product; he has to sell the dream. <laughs> exactly. Um, he starts bartering for price already. Uh, you know, he talks about latinum and, and dilithium, um, but apparently gold is still good too. But I thought gold was sort of one of the most commonplace things if you're out in space, which yeah, I thought like was... asteroids. And yeah, I'm, 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 I'm sure there's like one of those articles that keeps going through the news feed. That there's like a trillion dollars on one asteroid somewhere in our solar system. Oh yeah, I saw it was quintillion dollars. Oh wow! You know what that means? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we know why space force exists. Yeah, there you go. Money. <laughs> I think we are the Ferengis, actually. That's, That's true. <laughs> That's true. That is yeah. Um, he the this we get this great conversation between him and the colonel, and the colonel talks about his dodgy brother, who's a car salesman, which. For me, just sums up Quark. I don't know if you've got any thoughts on that. <laughs> but I think Quark then makes his first mistake in that he pushes the Russian angle, not sort of perhaps knowing what the Russians are and not knowing the history of it. Surely he must have met a couple of Russians, you know, at his bar from the Federation. He must have heard a story or two. You know, hey, that work he's kind of Russian. Exactly, yeah. From Worf alone, he should have known. So <laughs> I think this this is where it's sort of then his beginning of his own end. He's actually led himself to his own doom at that point. But I do like how, even though he hasn't heard of any Russians or perhaps you know the old Cold War stories, he has heard of baseball. He has heard of darts, root beer, atom bombs. I like how he jumps on that fourth one. Yeah, now he's heard of those. Yeah, that's it. It's nice and easy. Um, then we come back to another scene where they're now trying to learn a bit more about Ferengi culture and of course our professor who loves or wants to see his fiancée in her wedding dress more than anything else is now fixated on the fact that women are naked on Ferenginar this guy's terrible <laughs> he really is <laughs> I'm so glad it wasn't just me I'm so glad I wasn't watching this on my own and thinking oh my god this is an awful awful man <laughs> Like most people in that era. <laughs> After they've had that discussion, they leave, but they leave the dog in the room, and we get Odo showing up, and of course our other actor who is no longer with us as well. Um, but it's quite nice to see scenes for me, seeing Odo doing the comedic side, not just the serious side, which sometimes he does as well. But for me, I think Odo always shines in the comedic scenes. I didn't know if you had any thoughts on that. Oh yeah, he's the great like kind of straight man. Uh, you get the comedy from his reactions a lot of the times, and because there's people being goofy around him, but his seriousness almost—it's still hard to do that too and play a good straight man. Yeah. In fact, I just heard uh, the actor Ted Danson talking about that because for years, for Cheers and all the other shows, he always plays the straight man, but he gets a lot of the laughs because the camera goes back to you and you have to react in a way that makes the audience laugh to what just happened. So it's a very difficult craft in its own right. I think he does it perfectly. <laughs> We uh, also get uh, the mention of chemocyte, so we figure out there's been some accident with the shuttle, there was some chemocyte on board, Quark of course was doing something he shouldn't, and we get tech the tech. Uh, we get uh, energy trigger to te trigger a temporal surge in the subspace continuum, producing a time warp. Um, I, I love it. I love this kind of tech the tech talk. And according to this, Rom should be like ahead, ahead of all Starfleet science technology. <laughs> like, how in the world he came up with that is amazing. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure now that he's Nagus, you know, he can sell that theory uh, to the highest That's bidder. True. Exactly, it's his theory. I've forgotten about that. Um, but Quark wants power. He's not going anywhere. Um, they're crude. They're gullible, and they're greedy and easy to manipulate. Um, he's got a mission statement already. Uh, he's going to sell the warp technology uh, before humans, before Klingons, before even the Vulcans. 
Now, for me, that seemed a bit weird because only, what, 80 years later? No, 120 years later, because it's 2060s, isn't it? Um, the Vulcans come to Earth and they've got world technology. I can't believe it took only 120 years for the Vulcans to get there. So it seemed a bit odd. Am, am I wrong on the timeline here, but don't the Vulcans come to Earth accidentally um, during it, the Enterprise era as they well? They like, do indeed. <laughs> they already had warp technology even before this episode. Yeah. So either Quark's a really bad historian or he's just trying Probably. to exaggerate, maybe? Um, I don't think he reads much. So. <laughs> <laughs> he's too busy selling. Just too busy That's selling right. books. It's not profitable. <laughs> uh, but it did make me think that, you know, are we looking at characters who are in a different timeline? So maybe that will come into more things uh, for this podcast later. Now, uh, Odo is uh, going to be prepping the shuttle. He says, we have to leave. We have to get out of here. Quark stands his ground, doesn't want to leave. Um, but uh, it's too late because the humans on the other side do not trust this Martian. And here we get uh, the talk of uh, President Truman, the piano-playing Democrat. Only time in uh, Star Trek history that they mention the... Uh the political affiliation of a president, apparently. That's so really? Back to it, I found. Oh, that's fantastic. I hadn't seen that. That's fantastic. Because they always mention the names, but they don't fit into politics at all. So it's kind of funny. That that's, that's crazy. Is there a particular thing about that? Is there is that a thing on like American TV? And... Oh, did I not saying uh, political parties? Yeah. I mean, typically, it's everywhere because you can't avoid but mention it. You have to, yeah. kind of have to. But famously, that show Veep, uh, with yes. um, uh, Julie Louis-Dreyfus, they never mention the political party she's in the whole show. It's kind of <laughs> impressive. <laughs> That's incredible. I, I, I only just started watching it, so I'm looking forward to sort of binging it and, and getting through the whole thing. Um, That's great. I love it. Yeah. Oh, I did not know that. Thank you very much. That's a new bit of information for me. Thank you. Um, uh, we also get uh, what I like to call the rule of acquisition off where uh, it's uh, Quark says the riskier the road, the greater the profit, and then Rom's straight back with the uh, new customers being like Grey Worms. Sometimes they bite back. Uh, rule 203. Um, it's one of those guilty pleasures I always like when they bring in something like that and they're just trying to off each other with these random rules that seem to make it into the <laughs> rules of acquisition. Uh, any thoughts on that? So many. Yeah, there are. I just, I just love... You can always check out like the long list on Wikipedia of all the rules that were ever mentioned, and there's just so many random ones. <laughs> I was, I just, I like the as a writer, I like the idea that there are jobs out there. There's someone out there who sat down and had to work it out for the show. Uh, someday, you know, and it just got stuck in a book somewhere, and then they sold it. And I like that. I like that yeah. idea. They might as well. Yeah. Um, Springy way. Yeah. Um, but proof is in the pudding because the humans then barge in, they put potato sacks over them, and they cart them off for an interrogation. Um, they're very interested in what they know about the Russians. And we get the scream. The, the scene that opens up with Quark screaming his head off. Oh, and for a second, I, I looked down at my phone a split second during that scene. Like, literally for a split second, I, I got shocked in looking back at the screen. Like, what is happening? <laughs> like, who is making that scream? I'd forgotten all about that scene. And it's like, oh my God, did he actually make that noise come from his butt? <laughs> so it was very impressive. I, I, I'm, I'm guessing that was the actual actor, but that was, uh, yeah, it was amazing. <laughs> it's got to be. It's got to be. Uh, um, not just you, it was uh, my son, my 10 year old son who will not divert his eyes from Fortnite on the Xbox at all. Um, I was watching it in the same room as him, and that screen came up. He immediately then jumped over to watch that scene with me. Um, what so the hell's going on? What on earth is Dad watching? So for me, I'm taking that as evidence that non-Trek fans would be interested in this episode. They'll be pulled in by that point. Exactly, yeah. What is the screen what about? And there you go. Um, I thought it was hilarious that the fact that the sodium pentaball was doing nothing to him except extreme pain like, stop doing that why are you doing that stop using the needles that's so good and the whole back and forth I mean you've got um, Nog who then leans into this idea that there's an invasion happening you know it's no good Supreme Commander and and then Rom is just a screaming idiot in the corner Moogie Moogie um, <laughs> And this is another evidence of Nog being great for Starfleet because he has a plan. Like, he's doing this to trick the exactly. guys so he can take their guns and get away. And he tries, but he's, he's just a tiny little knock. So from, 
from just the few episodes I've seen with Kirk, it, it is an almost Kirk-inspired escape attempt. You know, making up this crazy plan, you know, Klingon shock troops, all this kind of stuff. You know, uh, we've got, you know, hundreds of vessels in orbit and they'll decloak any second. Um, I love how he just goes to that. The problem was he didn't use Kirk Fu, right? No, that's, that's true. He should have done. He should have used the Kirk Fu. Destroy uh, your whole body. And <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. You know, uh, moving objects, you know, you have to then slam yourself. It makes sense somewhere, I'm sure. <laughs> Yeah, somehow. Um, I do like the idea that uh, Rom is screaming Moogie in the corner. Um, uh, did you know that the Roswell incident, they, they talk about op- Operation, or sorry, uh, it's called, I'm going to turn back Mogul. on my notes. Mogul, yeah. I was wondering, yeah, is that... Mogul is what they, they claimed was the actual weather balloon project, but then it turns out, you look back at the, the documents that Mogul didn't happen for three years until after uh, Roswell happened. Uh, so there's another story that the Air Force for some reason put out that just simply wasn't true. So I'm not even claiming that Roswell was actually aliens, but it's just strange that the Air Force keeps putting out different stories and they turn out not to be true <laughs> later on. It's just very <laughs> odd. But yeah, Mogul and Moogie is very Mogul. similar. I, I didn't think about that. that was what I, was thinking. I, was, I thought, is there someone in the interrogation side room past the glass mirror who's then typing it out and mispronounced Mogi as Mogul? And then they kept the word just in case they need to use it for a project. That's so funny. I didn't think about that. Um, they're utterly helpless, and um, Nog is going to lean into his invasion story. And we go over to a map. Now, this is a really, really uh, thin tangential connection to my previous episode. But there was a map with a German commandant who was uh, examining where the Allies are going to be pushing against the Nazi invasion of uh, the United States. And it overlapped perfectly with Cleveland. Now, I don't know if there's a temporal nexus there, but the fact that Cleveland was brought up... um, I don't know geography very well, I'm afraid. Um, Certainly not US geography very well. Is Cleveland like a butt of a joke or something? Or is it, you know, why was it picked up? There are a lot of jokes about Cleveland, and I'm not sure exactly why, because it's it's just like a very middling kind of city. It's like, there's nothing impressive about it except the the, uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is in Cleveland. Ah. Um, You hear people screaming, oh, like the show, that 70s show, and beginning the song, Cleveland rocks, Cleveland rocks. But uh, other than that, like Cleveland's just kind of boring, I think, is the idea. (laughs) (laughs) So he's like, they're going to attack Cleveland? (laughs) That was kind of the joke there. I'm trying to yeah, I'm trying to think what the UK equivalent would be. I'm not going to say it on on a recorded podcast because it would just get me into trouble. But yeah, exactly, lots of hate mail. Although you know the hate mail might get more listeners. I don't know. You know, I'm in I'm in a quandary. Um, but I'll have to think who where the UK place would be. Yeah, uh, they are uh, rescued at the last minute with Odo doing what I think is Kirk Fu. Uh, he clasps his two fists together and then sort of clubs the guys yeah. around. Uh, which I thought was quite fun. But a very weird move for a changeling who could turn himself potentially into anything to do. Uh, you know, he could turn his hand into a sledgehammer or, you know, a bat or, or something. Um, I thought it was quite or interesting. A tentacle monster. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, you know, oh for the budget. Oh for the budget. Um, I do like the, the B-movie twist that uh, the the nurse then suggests that oh, you have your insidious mind control powers. Uh, which also puts me in mind of watching these episodes on the BBC. Um, there For a short time, you'd watch Simpsons at 6, then about 20 past 6, you'd have a Star Trek episode. Then afterwards, you would have a one-hour B-movie feature. And it would be, you know, the thing from outer space. You know, it'd be those kinds of B-movies. And it was a good couple of months they just did this back to back. great night of entertainment. Exactly, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, get home, do my homework, have me dinner, straight off, uh, up to my room, put the TV on, you know, and then Simpsons onwards. It was great. And one of those episodes, those insidious mind control powers, and, you know, the people were sort of moving around like uh, aimless zombies, you know, in the thrall of these aliens and things. So I I just liked that line. We then get uh, the death ray threat with the finger as well. Looks like a finger to me. Great. I love that even at the last moment that Colonel still isn't buying Quark's uh, BS. I thought it was really, so 
just that last utter thing we get the kind of uh, you know uh, sending the drums we get uh, i wish we could then meet you with a vast alliance of planets it just seems to come out of nowhere uh, yeah. in terms of writing that that thing you know that hopeful thing i know why it's in star trek because it's star trek but it just seemed to come out of nowhere no conversation whatsoever that's um, not a very smooth transition yeah. <laughs> she's she wants to be an ambassador straight away she's kind of like it's like Quark, she's giving herself the, uh, the the promotion straight away. Well, I wish she would have gone with them and take her away from that terrible man she's with. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, she's got to hang out with uh, three Ferengi who are going to probably, you know, uh, objectify her the whole way. But at least, oh, at least, at least Odo would be there, you know, to be yeah, fair. To protect her. To protect her. Um, but again, put me an idea of this Section 31 idea, you know, that uh, Rom has seeded the name of the Federation if she was brought into the task force that had all the photos and that sort of thing. Again, it just sort of came into that idea as well. We get uh, the shuttle takes off, bursts through the ceiling, flies off, and uh, all we got was a crashed weather balloon. We get uh, a little bit more tech the tech just before they disappear. Rom is there uh, and he's saying that we're going to ride this explosion home. Um, but um, uh, not one to miss out on an argument. Odo is straight in with Quark and they're just bickering about, you know, uh, you're going to be making up this up to me and you're in trouble and all this sort of thing. And um, the mushroom cloud explodes. Mm-hmm. I'll come back to that in a moment. And Odo just simply says, tell your brother everything's going to be okay. And Rom says, everything's going to be okay, brother. I hope. <laughs> now, mushroom explosion... I've already said in the history segment there were no uh, uh, atomic bomb explosions. So perhaps this is some sort of uh, admonition of, uh, of the timeline, perhaps something, some wrinkle has happened in the space-time continuum. Um, maybe there are secret tests. Maybe this is all part of the Roswell conspiracy. Any thoughts? That's true. Uh? Yeah, it very well could be something we just didn't know about. All sorts of testing going out there and creating radioactive beings and mutants and Exactly. The government's taking our jobs. This will all be covered in the pilot episode of the Section 31 show, so it's absolutely fine. Uh, and we come out of the episode at 42 minutes and 26 seconds. Right. Okay, so we have located the point in time. So we've done the first in our LCARS rating system. Next comes continuity. So, from what we've discussed, from what we've seen in the episode, Jarman, um, do you think there is any issues with continuity? Has anything changed by the Ferengi going back and um, you know, appearing in Earth's past? Well, it's weird because uh, Star Trek plays both cards as far as different kinds of timelines, where we have um, you know, the board going back and changing the timeline that we currently have, or being alternate timelines that we have with the um, other Kirk and Spock and that other universe that you know has those mm-hmm. other adventures. So it's like, if they change something here, would it have changed something going forward? Uh, very possibly, since we're all in the same universe. So they could have done a lot of damage. And I think since we know that the Roswell incident always happened, something happened, that they must have always done this. And so it didn't change anything, but they very well could have if they made different choices. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't have said it better myself. That was exactly what I was going to go for. Um, there's the, the idea that you know we do have Roswell in our history, wh- you know whether it was true or not. Um, but the fact that if anything happened and it was all over with within the same day, um, it as far as we know has had no effect. Nothing has happened, and we've already established in you know, speaking outside of the episode, um, we've already established that Cisco has already gone back in time and changed history just slightly by becoming a very famous figure. And, you know, there didn't seem to be too many ill effects. Um, so going back, that even gets mentioned in this episode, uh, elsewhere in the episode, outside the clips that we've been looking at. Um, so again, you know, they would have noticed by the time they got back, but I wonder what else has changed on Nog's uh, little uh, encyclopedia because of their journey. Or did they permanently change everything and now our minds are just altered and we remember this happening, but it wouldn't have happened if they hadn't gone back and done it. Exactly. They're insidious mind control powers. This is what they've done to us. (laughs) (laughs) 
But um, as far as the podcast is concerned, I am not going to deviate any timelines here. So I am going to say that this was sort of a time loop and nothing has actually changed. Uh, it's just giving us a little bit more of a hint about what's going on. Right, our next uh, criteria, alterations. Now, alterations can be anything you didn't like about the episode you want to change, uh, anything that you think they could have done better. Uh, or if you were to rewrite you know, the episode, do something different. Um, it doesn't have to be the same scenario. Did they go back to medieval England or something like that? Um, or, you know, pitch a series, perhaps a you know, Section 31 series, if you want. Um, so were there any alterations that you would make? I mean, I think I love this episode so much. I always did since it came out. And I, the only thing... I would wish for, which is just wish fulfillment, because it's it's not really wouldn't be possible in the budget would be to have uh, Quark, Ram, and Nog, and Yunodo meeting more people, getting out of that base, having mm-hmm. other locations, other things they could have been doing in that time period. Have two episodes of this, have a movie of this, because oh. I love this stuff so much. Um, I love time travel episodes. So yeah, if I could have had any more of that, I would have. I understand that that's really not possible. So I don't know what, how much I would change, except maybe the. Very heavy-handed, hand-handed, awkward lines of the of the woman character, yes. and also the weird chauvinism of her husband or future <laughs> husband. Um, so I would change some of that, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> no, uh, yeah, with the the husband, that was that was my main focus. Um, you know, I'll forgive all the smoking. I don't mind that bit, uh, but um, no, the the professor. You know, you kind of want the professor character to also be. A nice guy you know you, you kind of want the learned guy in the room yeah. to also have the, the higher minded old ideals so that you know that's why they're the perfect couple you know she sees this wonderful uh, vast alliance of planets and he's talking about a wedding dress you know just it, it didn't seem like they were a very well matched couple <laughs> no. so that yes just like you i would have changed that as well uh, but i've already mentioned the section 31 um, theory that I've, uh, I've already done uh, but had I wanted, I would have then maybe had, uh, you know, one of post credit sequence. You know, I know they weren't doing them back then, but if we were in the Marvel age back then, post credit sequence, you know, the photos get handed on to uh, President Truman. Truman then drafts a little thing in the U.S. Constitution called um, a separate section or something like that, and you know, we see this document being handed through time and it gets section one section 15 section 31 is the final one as it gets drafted you know drafted into the constitution of the federation and you know this is where it all came from um and i love this idea now that you've you've just pitched the the idea that it's kind of an x-files series i would love that as well Yes, and you know, we can actually work this into our history because the, there's a theorized conspiracy that Eisenhower and Truman were made this organization called the Majestic Twelve, which were this group of people, twelve people who were in the know about aliens and how they're doing. So they could do the same thing you were saying, where the the name Majestic Twelve goes to Majestic Thirteen, Fourteen. Someone finds out about the name Majestic, they change it to Section, and then Section Twenty, and it goes to Section Thirty One. That'd be so cool. Oh, I want that, to happen. that works so well. Oh, it works this is why I needed you on this episode. That is fantastic. <laughs> right. Uh, locked in to the Temporal Trek, TM, uh, Jarman Day, <laughs> Daniel Hitch. That's it. Uh, I don't know how any lawyers listening to this. Please just lock it in. Um, but uh, <laughs> copyright now. Um, so, yes, uh, you know, if CBS are listening, go for it. Um, right. So that's alterations recommendations uh the the final big rating is recommendations to star trek fans recommendations to non-fans and then to our godlike entities who see how important this event is in history so first to star trek fans do you recommend this scene to star trek fans oh yes absolutely and i've heard some star trek fans who are like elitists they don't like this one and think it's silly or something but they're wrong yeah it's wonderful (laughs) you can be wrong if you want yeah i've been no, um, I actually uh, had this episode, I had a debate with an ex-manager of mine. I actually had a, an interview with a manager for my very first job uh, at a company called Wilkinson's in this country, like a hardware store sort of thing. And uh, we uh, sat down, he got my CV, and he looked into hobbies and interests. It was his first thing he went to, and obviously Star Trek was in there. And he said, ah, oh, I'm, a, I'm a Trek fan. 
uh, so what do you think of um, you know DS9 and all this sort of thing? And then it got on to the Ferengi, and he hated the Ferengi. He hated the idea oh, of these, no. you know, these kind of um, you know uh, greedy, horrible people, and he hated all the funny episodes. And he just wanted to get on with the other stuff. Uh, and then I I mentioned this episode. I was saying like it's kind of funny because you're seeing you know, greed meets greed and all this sort of thing, and um, from that he didn't ask me a single other question in the interview. He said, "Yep, that's fine. You got the job. Uh, can you start next Monday? That's fine. Oh, okay, then all right." Um, so this episode, this episode started me on my uh, my journey of employment throughout my life. Uh, so Star Trek fans, Star Trek fans have to talk about this episode, whether they hate it or they love it. For me, Star Trek fans. Well, not have only did to you get you write a letter about this yeah. episode when you were a child, but then you also got a job because of this episode. I this this episode has played so many little things. I've been so looking That's forward crazy. to this episode so long. Um, <laughs> but um, but yeah, it, there's so many little things that this uh, this episode like delves into for me. Um, but yeah, so for Star Trek fans, a little bit of a tangent there. But for Star Trek fans, I think it's essential viewing, even if you have to debate the episode. Um, so to non-Star Trek fans, how do you feel that it might be um, inclusive to people who don't really know the background? I think it would be, I, I want to give them like a real quick description of what Ferengi culture is like. Mm. And like explain just real quickly that this guy Rom is going to join, you know, a, 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 the Federation or for the Starfleet for the first time as, as part of this race. And then they can watch it. Like that's all I need to describe is to be like, Ferengis are like this, this is what this kid's doing. That's what they're going here. And it kind of explains that at the beginning of the episode. But I think this is a very accessible episode for someone who's never even seen a single episode of Star Trek because it's about the Roswell incident. That's funny, strange aliens doing it. But otherwise, it's you don't really know that much, I don't think. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense to me. Um, for me, yes. I think there's a lot of context you have to kind of fill in. There's a lot of blanks you have to um, you have to let people know Um so they don't instantly judge, you know, they might not eye roll at the mention that all Ferengi women are, are naked on their planet and this sort of thing. That's true. <laughs> but I think the comedic performances, I think that's for me what really draws people in. I mean, it worked on my 10-year-old son and he doesn't even listen to me. So if a screaming Ferengi gets his attention, that for me is is 100% guarantee this is for non-Star Trek fans. Um, so, to the godlike entities, how important to the overall canon of Star Trek, the whole Star Trek franchise, how important do you feel this episode is? I think it shows that uh, there's hope for every race in this universe to develop the ideals of Starfleet and protect our timelines and protect what's important to us. And that ideal lives on in Rom. And he shows that even as the strangest of Ferengis, there is hope for this universe and for living beings everywhere. That is a great way. I hadn't even thought of that. That's really nice. I like that. Yeah, it really does establish wrong. Ooh, that might change. Ooh, I think you've convinced me on something. Because I was about to say, I, I was about to say, like, it, I don't know if it does, because obviously it was secret history, you know, whatever you feel about the Roswell incident, because we never knew it was, you know, actually this, and that we never actually knew what happened. Um, I didn't think it was that important, but actually, yeah. If we look at it from the character perspective, Ooh. it's a slight glimmer of hope, you know, because it could have yeah. gone very wrong. Port could have succeeded and changed everything for the worse. But you know, through the people like Odo and Rom, there's and even uh, even Nog, you know, just, yeah, it's true. Together. Oh, I meant to say, I think I was meant to say Nog earlier, and that's said Rom. Well, say Nog of all the ideals. Well, but, you know, same thing that goes for Rom. Exactly, Rom, Rom. We all love Rom. I know, I know the. the we need to get that as a t-shirt. I messed it up by saying the wrong name. <laughs> <laughs> no, it still works. I think it still works. The, the brother, uh, the, the son and the brother of Quark, you know, the, um, it's all good. It's all good. Um, That's true. They both help them. Exactly. The, the family. Um, so actually, yeah, I'm going to go. It is important. Yeah. I, I'm, you've convinced me because it will, exactly. it will um, inform you on what Nog and uh, Rom as well. Uh, will do in the future so yeah i think it is important i think you have to watch it thank you very much you've convinced me on that one i was i was i'm in an ring on that decision because i wasn't really sure uh but no thank you very much right right well thank you very much jarman 
uh, for joining me on, on this episode. It means a lot to me. This is actually the first time we've podcasted as well, I think. I think we've been on other episodes of other shows, like with more yes. people maybe. Yes. But uh, first time together is the two of us, and I'm just glad I can help you while you're stuck in that time bubble because it's got to get boring in that quarantine. It really is. I mean, don't ask about the bathroom situation. Uh, it's it's not it's not pretty. Interdimensional um, space bathrooms aren't nice. Yeah, yeah. Well, the black hole bathroom comes around every couple of cycles, but you know you have to catch Ooh. it at the right time. It's it's not good. It's not good. That waste extraction. Oof. <laughs> oh, it's terrible. It sucks. Literally, it sucks. Um, <laughs> But no, thank you so much, Jarman. It's been a real pleasure, and uh, I hope that we can get you on uh, future episodes as well. Absolutely, I'd love to. Thanks so much. Thank you. Right, all that remains is our final criteria, setting up the next episode. Join me next time for Season 1, Part 2, Episode 5. We're going to Season 2 of Enterprise, Carbon Creek, 1957. And we're going to start at timestamp 3 minutes... 58 seconds. All that remains is for me to say thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you in the next time stream. What the? Is that chemocyte? Fusing on the bubble? If chemocyte is on the bubble, that could act as a transmitter. If I could adjust the device, I could send the signal using the chemocyte, creating a subspace, tear, and send the message through to the future. Oh, I hope this works. If you'd like to contact the show, there's now a Twitter account. Search Temporal Trek Podcast at Rider underscore Coattail. Or contact me directly at Hitch underscore Daniel. I'm also on Instagram, Daniel underscore Hitch underscore Writer. There's also a website with all of the timestamps you need to follow along. Go to ridingcoattails.simplesite.com and click the Temporal Trek page link. The show is always going to be free, there's no Patreon at all. But, if you wish to financially contribute to the show, feel free to find my books by searching me, Daniel Hitch, on Amazon. And we'll catch you in the next time stream.